Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I absolutely love having return guests on Classical Ideas. On Halloween in 2018, I put up episode number 77 with author, teacher, witch, and artist Daniel Dolsky, and we had an absolute blast. In that episode, we discussed her book, The Holy Wild, a heathen Bible for untamed women. On this return episode, we discuss Danielle's new book, Seasons of Moon and Flame, The Wild Dreamer's Epic Journey of Becoming. Both of these books are out from New World Library. Danielle Dolsky describes herself as a heathen visionary, painter, and word witch. She teaches internationally and has facilitated circles, embodiment trainings, communal spell work, and seasonal rituals since 2007. She is the founder of The Hag School and believes in the emerging power of wild collectives and sudden circles of curious dreamers, cunning witches, and rebellious artists in healing our ailing world. As an Irish-American, Danielle's witchcraft is deeply rooted in Celtic philosophy and Irish mythology. She's the founder of Living Mandala Yoga. You can also find her online at danieldulski.com and you can find her books from New World Library. We had an incredibly good time hanging out virtually from our homes during the socially distanced time of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm grateful to Danielle for chatting with me during this time. So without further delay, please welcome Daniel Dulski back to Classical Ideas. Danielle Dulski, welcome back to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much, Greg. Very happy to be here. Well, um, Danielle, it is great to have you back on the show. I had you back on uh, episode 77, I believe, for a Halloween episode a ways back. So it's wonderful to have you back. I love having people come back on the show. And we're here today to celebrate your new book, Seasons of Moon and Flame, The Wild Dreamer's Epic Journey of Becoming. So um, I wanted to know if you can kick off the conversation by doing a reading of something that you have in the introduction of your book and the terminology is important it's called the hag's song and we'll talk about that um in just a moment do you want to kick off by doing a little reading for us sure i'd love to here we go the hag song i fell into sleep and dreamt of a hag she leapt like a youth and crouched on a crag I know you, I said, her face was my own. I'll show you, I said, and I ran for that crone. Just look, I am you, you wild boned thing. She shook and turned blue and then started to sing. Her prayer was so old, bewailing the trees, a keening so bold for rough times like these. I licked a tear from her eye and the salt from her hair. Then she was I, her hymn mine to share. My bones, how they ached, but my songs were so rich. My voice, how it quaked with the howl of that witch. I sang for the elders, the dead, and the snow. I moaned for the yew trees, the wolf, and the crow. In time, I grew soft, a soul sopped in song, a kalyak lost in a rhyme gone too long. I woke in the dark, nudged up by a ghost. The song left its mark, but that hag I loved most. Can you tell me a little bit about the creation of the hag song? 
Yes, I have a great story for that, actually, unlike a lot of my other writing. Sweet, bring it on. I have a really epic story. (laughs) Uh, I was part of this, um, like, in, I don't know the right way to describe it. It was like an indigenous Irish training, uh, Celtic shamanic training. And one of my assignments was to write two eulogies for myself. And one of them was the eulogy that I would hope would never be read at my funeral. Mm. (laughs) And the other was the one that I would like to be read at my funeral. Um, And so the hag song is the one that I would like to have like to be read at my funeral. Perfect death ritual. Awesome. Okay. Well, yeah. there there's a lot of intriguing vocabulary within the Hag song, and I think that it's appropriate to kind of nail down a little bit of these terms because you include the word hag and you include the word crone, and these are not normally considered kind words, but as I'm reading this book, I have the sense that mm-hmm. you're sort of taking ownership of these terms. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit how you discovered these terms initially and how you came to repurpose them. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, the the reclamation of the word witch, that's been going on for a while. And I think that there's a certain level of comfort uh, among not I wouldn't say most people but there's a certain level of comfort with the word witch now and there wouldn't have been maybe 20 or 30 years ago and now I'm always kind of looking for those words that are on the fringes of comfort Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. I think that I think that hag is one of them so it is a word that you see a little bit more often than you used to and it's the the hag is kind of one of the human shadows you know she's the the Baba Yaga or the Kalyak in the woods who's going to eat your children or <laughs> is mm. going to to um, you know trap you in her oven or something so um, in reclaiming those words like Hag and Crone it's about trying to uh, dismantle a lot of the indoctrinated beliefs around you know what it means to be what the fem- what feminine solitude means mm. um, it has a lot to do with the burning times and the the women that were victims of the witch hunts they were very often just the, you know the women that lived alone that didn't have, have a lot of social support uh, so they were more isolated so in reclaiming hag it's also you know kind of untying ourselves from the stake in a way also uh so i think it's a big deal and as far as when when did i encounter these words i'm I'm not sure i know that (laughs) one of my favorite fairy tales growing up was hansel and gretel and like not for the right reasons like i really wanted to be wanted to be the witch in the woods that you know has like the children in cages or something I was like I don't know what I don't know why but she's got some deep magic that witch is in the woods so yeah Mm, nice um so it's been a while since you've been on the show um and I know that you were here um for your last book and so how have you been in the last couple years how is everything going on your end as far as like your creative energy goes in the putting forth and the effort to create this new book in the last couple of years. 
Yeah, it's been a very intense time, um, especially like that time when I was on your show. So I guess that was October of 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like a real blur. Gotcha. <laughs> that whole season. I got married uh, in December. So just a few months after that. And I uh, was kind of on a book tour for the Holy Wild up until that point. And it was really like a, a hectic time in my life that I don't remember very nice. much of. Um, Um, so that after that, yeah, it's been, so seasons of moon and flame, it's a longer book and it took a while to write, uh, longer than my first two books. So, um, it was nice because I, you know, in the book, there's four different seasons and I was able to, it took long enough to write that I was able to actually be in all four seasons (laughs) at some point while I was writing the book. So that was a pretty cool thing. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been an adventure these past two years. So you have the book that, as you just mentioned, it's sort of almost like an annual year of living. It's, it's almost like a manual, right? Based around these characters of hags and crones. Can you tell me a little bit about the structure of the annual yearly cycle within the book and sort of how you have that set up as almost as like a, a, almost like a manual of like how to live your life over the course of four seasons? Right, exactly. It it started with, uh, with the idea of looking at each lunar cycle. So each month, basically, as its own season, instead of looking at, you know, these these four solar seasons, looking at the, the 13 lunar seasons. So that's where it started. And then in the book, you kind of journey around to these four different houses of the sacred hags. So there's a hag for each solar season. And uh, the hag tells you a story for each moon and Mm -hmm. then the rituals and spells are kind of based off of that story that she tells so that's the structure of the book but yeah there's there's a lot in there (laughs) excellent um so in the book like so i'm reading this and we're in this very very odd time right everybody's living slowly right now and i get the impression in the book that you seek to live slowly anyway does that does that resonate yeah that's absolutely true okay so what i'm curious about is can you tell me a little bit about your path to learning how to live slowly um as everything has frantically screamed forward around you while while the world has sped up you have slowed down and now everybody is slowed down. So you're almost like ahead of the curve, I feel like, a little bit right now. How did you make that purposeful shift to living slowly as everything has sped up over the course of your life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'll start by saying that I have failed miserably mm. <laughs> at doing that and still do, even now when we're, you know, cocooned. Yeah. Um, And uh, I was thinking about that this morning, actually, where I was kind of like frantically trying to market this class that I'm (laughs) trying to offer next week. And I was like, I'm like killing myself right now to do this. Yeah, (laughs) there's really there's really no rush. Um, So so, yeah, so I have my personality by nature. I am not a slow living person. I I kind of. I have a sense of self-worth when I'm doing something, which I think is one of the symptoms of like capitalism and mm. our hyperspeed world and all of those things that we absorb. Um, 
But as an artist, I've had to train myself to not only value myself when I'm creating, and in particular, when I'm being paid for creating. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes just art for art's sake, writing for writing's sake is good too. Um, so it's been, you know, many, many lessons learned over the years about what it means to, uh, to kind of tend the like inner fire without having to move so fast all the time and be seen moving fast all the time. So yeah, gotcha. all of well, these lessons learned. And so like you also just mentioned that you're offering a class. I know that you're a founder of something called the Hag School. Is that what you're referring to whenever you talk about offering classes? Yeah, I offer most things through the Hag School now. Can right? you tell us a little bit about what that is, that, that your school? Yeah, the Hag School is, uh, it's, it's mostly me. So I'm the founder. And then we have nine other amazing witches and ritualists who, um, who offer things as well. So it's mostly online courses. And I have a witchcraft apprenticeship, writing mentorship. We have an online coven that's kind of a uh, about a 200 or so person group. We get together once a month on the interwebs and <laughs> we tell stories. And then we do have in-person offerings too, like retreats, but we haven't been able to do those obviously right yeah, now. So yeah, it's, no there's been a lot of restructuring going on and it's been actually really interesting like the amount of space it's opened up for creating by like removing like what we thought to be the big things like retreats uh it actually opened up a lot of new possibilities after we got over the initial grief about <laughs> not, mm. not being able to do those things um so yeah so the hag school nice okay so in your um you know, your ambitions to little bit, live a little bit more slowly, even in our fast world. Um, what does that look like? Can you tell me a little bit about your like daily routines in an effort to sort of live slowly in the ways that you describe throughout the book? Yeah. So I, um, I have my children half the time. So we have shared custody. So my life is kind of split between <laughs> having a lot of time, half of the week to live very slowly yeah. to kind of wake up late and, uh, you know, tend my altars and move through some body prayer and then get to work and wrap up, you know, late afternoon. And it's this beautiful rhythm that I have like Sunday through Tuesday. That's so funny. <laughs> and yeah. then, <laughs> and then Wednesday through Saturday, it's different, especially now when the kids aren't in school. So um, even then, though, uh, what, what I've done for myself out of necessity is I have what I call like these root rituals that, that would be different than what a root ritual, root ritual would be in like voodoo or hoodoo. So a root ritual for me is like a simple, easy ritual that takes five minutes that I can do every day no matter what because you always have five minutes. Um, so for me, it's like waking up and lighting candles and maybe just taking some breaths at the altar. And that serves to kind of ground my day, even mm. when it's going to be a very hectic day mm -hmm, <laughs> of, of mm -hmm. motherhood. Um, so, so yeah, so I have, you know, a lot of space a lot of the time. And then I have like this very contained intentional space uh, where I have to kind of carve out these, these small 
ceremonies for myself. Um, and I did that when my children were very young and they're not anymore. Um, but when they were very young and like my whole day was consumed by them and I would have these like little pockets of time and it was Mm -hmm. like, how can I fill this pocket of time the best way possible that will serve me? So that's where it came from learning to live slowly in only five minutes. (laughs) What is a, like a five minute, like grounding ritual that you could, um, describe right now on the show that people could maybe do if they're looking to try something out like a morning grounding ritual what would you suggest like a total newbie give a shot doing Mm -hmm. um so what i would suggest is i would call it body prayer but you don't have to call it body prayer if that freaks you out um you would just come if you even if you don't have an altar lighting a candle is nice because it helps you do what i call tend to the spirit of the moment so it's like naming the moment as important and that's that's a big deal even though it seems like i'm just going through this motion of lighting a candle it's a big deal. So you approach the moment with intention. Um, and then you ask yourself, what is my desired state of being for the day? So if you want it, want it to be rest or peace or joy or empowerment, you know, you, you would name that for yourself. And then you would ask yourself, where is this feeling in the body? So like the language is good, but really we want to know like, what does, if it's empowerment, what does that feel like? Where is it? What temperature is it? What color is it? Like, where is this energy in your body? And then how can you move either in small ways or big ways that will expand that energy? So that can be only a two minute thing where you're just kind of moving in what's often bizarre movements, but you can do it in the bathroom with the door closed Mm. if you don't want anybody to see you. And how can you breathe in ways that will expand that energy? How can you make, make, um, you know, noises or chants in ways that will expand that energy? Um, so yeah, that's just a very small, simple ritual that you can do every day. Uh, that's sort of a way to resource you so that, you know, as you move through your day and you're maybe faced with a moment that might be disempowering, you can remember that moment in the morning when you were moving through that body prayer of empowerment and it will, uh, support you. Nice. I'm always curious about like people's daily practices, you know, like people, I have these amazing folks all on this show all the time and they all write these incredible books. And I'm always like, what are you doing in your day to day life? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you (laughs) center yourself in order to write these works and these books and these articles? And everybody has their routine. So I'm always curious what people do on a day to day um, level in order to stay productive and to stay positive and feeling healthy enough to create you know, the works that you all do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I bet you get a lot of different answers. <laughs> I do. And I love talking about it. I love hearing about it too, because I think about all of the, you know, the minutes of each day that like I waste, like lost in thought, like rolling through my phone or, um, you know, something like that, where I could be doing something a little more grounding, a little more productive, a little more centering instead of just getting mm-hmm. lost in thought and just going down a rabbit hole that I don't really need to do. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and we all struggle with it, you know? And yeah, so I feel like do. talking about it openly and honestly is something that will make us only healthier and make us more aware of when we do it so we can catch ourselves whenever we are allowing ourselves to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I want to go back to the book. Um, sorry about that. I have a little tangent here. Um, so, you know, in your book, um, Seasons of Moon and Flame, I feel like this slow living theme is 
spread throughout, and it requires us to value the stories that um, our elders teach us in our, you know, our traditions, whatever traditions those might be. Uh, and it teaches us to sort of like slow down and to listen a little bit. And in the book, you call stories, just stories in general, you call them medicine. And when you described a story as medicine, it's almost like a balm, a soothing balm that like, you know, cools us whenever we're hot. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I felt about it. And because I, I think about my job a lot, um, and I've been an English teacher for a long time, and, you know, people are always thinking like, oh, it's so it must be so hard to be a teacher. And I'm like, I, I get to talk about stories with young people, yeah. you know? And so, like, people yeah. talk about, like, the difficulty of being a teacher, and I'm like, but I get to talk about stories every day. What could be better than that? And so when I saw that you described stories as medicine, that really hit home for me. And so I want to talk a little bit about stories and what they mean to mm-hmm. you. So how does the art of the story play like a regular influence in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think like what struck me recently is seeing uh seeing films like uh like 1917 did you see 1917 not yet but i've heard amazing things about it and it's like so there was that movie and and then i i saw a hidden life before that which was Mm -hmm. also really good um and like you know the films are like not these epic stories like i mean it it is but it isn't it's not like you know the the 1917 is about this war hero that like we never would have heard of Mm -hmm. right like (laughs) it wasn't like um it wasn't this huge huge story with, with, with names in the history books and a hidden life was was this similar story about a farmer um during world war ii in austria and it's like i think that more frequently we're seeing these smaller stories and that that's what's important is like telling the stories that don't necessarily fit the mold of the epic hero's journey that that's the best medicine because you know a lot of times you hear those stories and it's like well that's not my life right now. I'm mm-hmm. never going to be Frodo who <laughs> right. gets the, yeah, get, goes on this epic quest. Right. Um, and you know, so, so even in the Holy wild, it's about like knowing that your story, however mundane it might seem to you that it is important. And so in listening to the elder stories and I talk about in seasons of moon and flame, listening to my grandmother's stories, yeah, I was just going to bring that, that up. <laughs> Yeah, that like they, it's not like these these tales that that um you know anyone that, that's going to be like a blockbuster Hollywood movie necessarily, uh, and yet they are the best medicine because it's like here's this person who has lived long and and understands where I am in this moment and has made it through and is able to offer this medicinal perspective on where I am in this moment and that 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 means everything um yeah tell me a little bit more about your your grandmother too like because you she plays a prominent part in the beginning of this book 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she, my grandmother, Grace, she died in 2015. And she, along with my grandfather, they, they pretty much raised me up until about the age of 12. I was with them. Uh, I was with them a lot. And uh, so, you know, talk about slow living. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I remember, like, you know, the routine of just like, this is when it's breakfast time. This is when it's dinner time. And like, this is you're kind of like out side in between. <laughs> yeah. And, and like that was really uh you know th- th- I I said at her funeral that like everything that's good in me came from her and my grandfather. Like I really believe that everything I have that's like grounding and allows me to make good art, it came from that very spacious uh childhood where boredom was was normal. <laughs> boredom Mm. was kind of a resource of the imagination um so so yeah so my grandmother and like you know the stories that she would tell me after my grandfather died so my grandfather died in 1994 um so there were many years after he died before she died where she would share these stories of like how they got married that was like this crazy story (laughs) about they they eloped to North Carolina because they couldn't (laughs) get married in Pennsylvania because they were 17 it was like like why wouldn't you tell me that before (laughs) yeah that's that's an amazing story story um so yeah so uh my grandmother I owe an awful lot to her what um because it feels like you're still listening to the stories of your grandmother like I almost feel like you're still learning new things as I'm reading this book I'm like while she's still learning things from her grandmother who isn't even around anymore are you still like realizing new things along the way yeah absolutely um I think like a big part of slow living, and this will get weird for a second, but (laughs) a big part of slow living for me is being able to re-member the past. So kind of like reorder the past. Mm -hmm. So if I'm remembering this moment from childhood when I was like sitting in this mulberry tree in my grandmother's yard, like I often did, that in a way I'm kind of visiting that moment. I'm like visiting that memory in a way where I can kind of change it. So like if you remember these these moments from childhood when you felt like someone was watching you or you were like, oh, somebody saved me in that moment. I don't know who, but someone did. Like what if it was you? What if you like in remembering it, you can go back and kind of revision and affect those moments that we might normally cage in that thing called past? Um, just Just what if? Yeah. How do you, uh, as a parent now, do you encourage your own kids to like be bored in order to seek that, (laughs) that creative breakthrough that you were kind of alluding to? I try against all odds. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I usually fail. Um, I, I mean, especially right now, they're doing a lot of online school. Yeah. So, like, I don't know if they're actually do, <laughs> doing online school yeah. or not, or if they're just staring at their phone. Um, but, yeah, I try. Like, uh, my husband and I were constantly telling them, like, you know, go outside and sit there mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and see what happens. Um, I think that's one yeah. of those things that, like, they'll – 
that that'll be the thing that they'll learn from how you're still learning from your grandmother from years ago. I think that that'll mm-hmm. be one of those things that stick with them for a long time. And then they'll be learning in the future about things that are happening now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's right. Like exactly. Burn. That's what I'm banking on. <laughs> yeah, it's like a slow burn. It'll it'll come through. Right. Um, okay, yeah. cool. So I'm curious about the seasonal cycles within the book a little more. So um, you break the book into a seasonal cycle for living. And each season has a specific hag that you associate with each season. So you have the garden hag for spring, the desert hag for summer, the sea hag for autumn, and the mountain hag for winter. Who are these characters in your mind and how did you come to associate this symbolism with each season? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, I can give a overly simplified answer where it's in, in the Celtic wheel of the year, the different seasons are associated with specific elements. So winter is associated with earth or mountains. Uh, spring is associated with um, air and um, summer is fire and then autumn is water. So that's sort of where the personalities of the hags, you know, were, were seeded <laughs> by, by linking the elements to the seasons. But the rest is, was sort of like letting them come alive. Like there, there was kind of this dance between the stories that I really wanted them to tell. So the, in the book, there's 13 different stories. So it was sort of like knowing what those stories were with respect to the season and then letting the personality of the hag who is telling these stories take form as sort of secondarily to the stories that they were going to be telling, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, how do uh, so? How do you see the like uh, the commencement of a new season with opening a portal? Because like you have this concept of like opening a portal for the beginning of a new season. Can you tell me a little bit about the the portal opening and how that fits in within this uh, these transitions? Yeah. So in the in the beginning of the book in the prologue, I think I talk about how visits to my grandmother's house sort of took on this very predictable form during my early 20s, which was I would come in and she would feed me. (laughs) And then she would kind of have this poignant question or challenge that was kind of like a bite, like it wasn't necessarily something that felt good. And then after that, there would be kind of the integration or the wisdom. So it was like this predictable rhythm to visit to my grandmother's house. And I started looking at that with respect to the three moons of any solar season. So like the three moons of spring, for example, that first moon is often one of nourishment. There's like a little bit of, of joy and excitement because it's like, oh, it's the first warm day or, you know, it's the first autumn wind or something like that. And so that's sort of the the nourishment, like the the nice part, the settling in. And then the second moon of the season, that's when it's like, oh, I'm here now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when there's there's the bite or the challenge. So that second moon is a moon of challenge. And then that third moon is the moon of integration where you're sort of weaving it all together and then also getting ready for whatever the next season is going to be. So that, that opening of the portal, it's sort of this often nourishing kind of exciting more joyous time that then quickly (laughs) transitions into the challenge and then the the integration that follows so it's sort of this predictable rhythm of any season for me yeah and I kind of feel like it it encourages the reader to 
embrace and to be excited for the impending season. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I hope so. Do you have That's a? That's how it is for me. Do you have a copy of the book there? I do. Do you? Uh, can you read one of your invocations? Like you can pick any of the invocations from uh, any of the seasons. I'm just curious if you could read one, and then we could talk a little bit about it. Sure. Let me read the invocation to the crown of the east. Excellent. So that's the first one for spring. Uh, <clears throat> Welcome, witch of blooming bud. Paint my face with loam and mud. The scent of birth, this cleansing storm, and you, the hag, in softer form. Tell me a little bit about this. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the so the the in in spring we meet the garden hag so for me the first moon of spring which um you know we've already moved through the first moon of spring because we're past the the equinox now and that moon is like you know the scent of wet mud and uh for for a lot of people it's uh, it's a very heavy time. It's a challenging time. So it was where I, I could get into Ayurveda if you wanted me to. But like mm. Pitta people like me were like full of fire. And so <laughs> early spring is like the greatest time. Nice. Because there's <laughs> a lot of water in the air. Yeah. And it's cool. And then when we get to summer, that's when Pitta people are like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I totally hear anymore. you. And like you're a Northeasterner okay. too, because like I'm a Northeasterner yes. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this time. And this is like the perfect temperature for me. So I totally understand. Yeah, me too. And I love the rain and like the, especially like, uh, you know, like fat snowflakes that don't mm. really stick to the ground. Like that's the greatest time for me. I absolutely so, love that. So there's this, this transformation that goes on in early spring between, um, in, in Irish mythology, it's the Kaliak, which is like the blue-skinned hag. At Imbolc, which is February 2nd, she turns into stone and Briad or Brigid takes over as like the flame-tending maiden. So this invocation to the crone of the East, it's sort of about that transformation like to a, a, a softer version of the hag. Nice. You know, and mm. you keep talking about something in the background here and I want to bring it up and it's talking about mm -hmm. the importance of Irish mythology within your own work mm -hmm. and I mean I think that we may have spoken about this whenever we talked the first time but can you mm -hmm. just tell me a little bit about why Irish mythology just gels with you so much and so completely <laughs> yes I'll have a hard time talking about it quickly and succinctly <laughs> no it's fine I understand <laughs> it's uh for me, the the well, for anyone, I think the the myths of your ancestry they sort of come back for you. So they're mm. like they're often the ones that you find the most boring in the beginning because they're so familiar because they kind of live in your blood, and then they keep coming back for you and they keep coming back for you until you're like, oh, fine, <laughs> let, mm. let let me study more about these archetypes and these you know these epic battles and these fairies or, or whatever might, the characters might be. Um, so for me, my, my entire mother line is Irish. So uh, it's something that I, I lived with growing up and didn't really fully embrace uh, until maybe my, my teenage years. And I did move to Ireland the first chance I got when I graduated high school when I was 18. And I lived there for six months. Um, and it was 
you know, it was like a rebirth. It was like a, a like, oh, I finally feel kind of like I belong in this weird place where I've never been before. <laughs> I have this this new sense of of a kinship with land that maybe I hadn't felt before. Um, so learning about the mythology that all kind of came later but but it's it was like in working with deity in my witchcraft and then in writing and using these different uh these different archetypes like maybe fairies um as an energy that feels like really uh, old and ancient but yet strangely mine Mm. um that was really, you know, this, this new form of nourishment that, um, yeah, that's a, it's a constant weaving with almost everything that I do. I love it. No, and you just mentioned land. And I can mm-hmm. always tell by reading your work just how completely connected to land you feel. I felt it in your first book. And then, like, we became friends on Instagram and stuff. And, like, I've seen so <laughs> many photos of you where you're, like, in the forest and I can tell that land is so deeply woven throughout everything that you do. Can you tell me about a little bit about the importance of the forest within your own life? Because I it, it resonates throughout all of your work. Yeah, it's uh, forest is my reset. Um, I think I think everyone, if they they go back and they kind of track these moments of presence throughout their life, like when have you felt fully present, like you were sort of like in the flow of the universe, you can find these really clear patterns in nature. And so for some people, it's like swimming. For some people, it's watching fire or something like that. And, and for me, it's definitely like earth element, trees, mountains, forest. Um, so like my, my grandparents, they, they had this cabin in the Pocono mountains and my family still has that cabin. So like I've, I've been able to take my children there every summer and it's been this, this great healing thing. Like talk about going back and revisiting childhood moments. (laughs) I I still get to do that every summer. And, and like my father was a child there also. So it was this really cool, like ancestral home where there is still no cell phone connection there's no wi-fi Mm. there's no we are completely removed um and so to see my kids who are very plugged in people go there and there's this like one day of just complete rebellion where (laughs) they don't want to be there anymore they can't take it anymore but then almost immediately there you know in in the a day or two there's a complete reset that happens uh and i i believe that it's solely because of that like the mountains and the forest and there's a lake there and it's just very spacious so forest is still my reset button nice well and you close the book by paying tribute to the stories you were told by your dad by your grandma who you both have mentioned throughout this conversation and you also emphasize the importance of telling and creating new stories with your kids that you hope that they will tell for years to come uh, and so we've kind of been dancing around this, but right now we're in this like massive international shutdown due to like COVID-19, the pandemic and everything. Mm -hmm. And we find ourselves with like a lot of time on our hands that we don't normally have. And so for anybody who may be listening, I mean, this is going to be going on in waves for months around the world. Right. And so I'm curious if you can offer any suggestions for, um, people out there or for people with kids 
to maybe turn this moment into sort of a an unforeseen opportunity and to make it into something that can be important in their own lives for years to come and may sort of reframe in a way the ways that we uh, live our lives? Yeah, I love that question. I I feel like I'm still feeling into exactly what that opportunity is. Um, I know that in in my house, there's been a lot more conversation. And the conversations just starting to kind of shift a little bit away from me just trying to you know, be like, so how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> With all of this and like see, you know, where they are. Cause I keep thinking like, I can't imagine being a kid living through this moment right now. Mm, I just yeah. like, I have no, you know, s- script for that. So, so anyway, so the conversation kind of moving away from just checking in and making sure they're okay and also sort of preparing them for it, whatever might be coming um, toward like a, 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 a almost challenge to like realize that this moment is important, that like this is a story that you're going to tell your kids, you know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like, like where we're like, they're always asking me, like, what do you remember about 9-11? Yeah. And it's like, this is sort of like, this is a moment in time, like there will be a story with this. Um, and again, it might not be like the most epic story, like, well, we sat in our houses for... <laughs> for a few months yeah um it might not be like the you know a, a, a movie or something like that but that it is important so um I guess that and and I have this great friend her name's Suzanne Fisher she's brilliant she's a, a licensed clinical social worker and she was talking about like the importance of tending to your children's nervous systems at this time and mm. how important playing games is because it's like this like competitive part of the vagus nerve that they're like not getting uh not being in school not playing sports so you know trying to like over the you know have this kind of like witty banter (laughs) at the dinner table and then like play games afterwards like that's something that we didn't do a lot of before um and that we're doing a lot now so so that's what i would say is like you know trying to think of like ask your kids like what's your story of this time gonna be you know yeah and see what comes out well, and my kiddo, she's uh, she's playing like right next to me at the moment, and she is just creating things nonstop, setting things up around the house, setting up little displays. She is uh, reading books of riddles to us uh, as we're like cooking dinner and things like that, and we've been playing a yeah. lot of cards, and so it's uh it's it's a weird time being around. Yeah. Um, but it's really funny the little opportunities that keep popping up for uh, us to allow her to be creative and to express herself in little ways. Like just since I've been sitting here with you, she set up a little step ladder with a little display uh-huh. of toys that are sitting right across from me. And she just did that <laughs> in total silence while I've been sitting here talking to you on the phone. And it's just been a delight to watch. So I've been listening to you kind of talk about uh, the new book and all these great stories that you tell within it. And I'm also yeah watching her create something that she wouldn't have had the chance to do if she was, you know, out of the house right now at school with her friends. Right. 
Yeah, right. That's so amazing. Yeah, I keep wondering, I'm like, is my, are my kids cooler now because of this? Or did I just not notice how cool they were? Yeah, for <laughs> because real. Because I was busier. Yeah, well, and, and my wife and I were always talking like about our, our kiddo. And we're always like, she's just getting better and better, isn't she? Mm-hmm. It's right. just one of those things. They do. It's one of those things. Well, Danielle, this new book, Seasons of Moon and Flame, The Wild Dreamer's Epic Journey of Becoming is out now from New World Library, just like last time. And they are buds of mine. So I'm super happy that you two are working together mm-hmm. as well. I also noticed that you have a mutual friend uh, of ours named Chris Grasso, who blurbed the mm-hmm. book on the back cover, mm-hmm. which is awesome. I know that you and Chris, I know you've been on Chris's podcast before too, um, Indie Spiritualist, and he is amazing. He's a great dude. So I'm glad that yeah. you two have hooked up. And um, so, yeah, do you have any places that you would encourage listeners to go and check out if they want to follow you, know more about your work and find out what you do? Yeah, um, I have I have two websites. So Danielle dot com, just my name and then the hag school dot com and uh, and maybe Instagram uh, mm-hmm. Wolf Woman, which is me. So everything that I do is always in all three places. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well, Danielle, it, it's so great to chat with you again, especially during this very, very strange time we're living through at the moment. But uh, yes. it's a delight to have you back on the show. And obviously, uh, anybody who's listening can listen to episode 77 that we did together about your previous book, The Holy Wild, which is also fantastic. So mm-hmm. um, I would direct people to that as well if they want to learn more and listen to more uh, of you and I chatting because we talked for a Halloween episode and it was super rad and I loved it. Um, <laughs> so it's so great to have you back and thank you so much for taking the time to come back on Classical Ideas and hang out with me. Thank you, Greg. Until next time. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.